So now we can open our ears now. Now first of all, just move to get yourselves nice and comfortable. I must admit, I was going to tell the carrot joke. Can I leave that to the end? Simply because when you get really peaceful, you just want to carry on with the peace and relaxation. But there was a question which somebody asked me earlier, a request for a talk. And it's n not too much to do with the fact this is not Chinese New Year Eve uh, today. But I do know that many people, they love celebrating the different um, festivals of the year. And I do know that one of the important parts of the Chinese New Year is for families to get together to meet with one another. And so somebody was asking me, so sort of what is just the ideas, the most wise way of dealing with one's responsibilities, especially to one's mother and father? Because they feel you know, very, very conflicted. You know, to go back and see your parents, but then you've got many responsibilities here. And what should you do? I don't know the... Sometimes people feel this is an Asian tradition to respect you know, your parents so much. But I don't agree with that because you know, my family were, were English English, you know, uh, working class, you know, from Liverpool and from also from uh, Midlands, Stoke-on-Trent. But the family was very important. We always respected, you know, our parents. But how? How much? And I know that maybe it's because I was very fortunate to have a very uh, caring family. My father had very little education. He was very, very poor in Liverpool. And he just hitchhiked down to London after the Second World War to get an education and a job. But he was never healthy. And because of that, you know, he always had very, very simple jobs. Even though his work was very, very simple, usually in gas stations, because he liked the, being outside. He had like bad asthma, which eventually killed him. But still, I always re remember him with enormous respect, the sorts of things which he taught me. I know one of those things which he taught me, hopefully you all know by now, because it formed an important way of, for me to understand what this unconditional mindfulness is all about. And that was when I was maybe only 14. Just no young boy, just growing into maturity. And you know, he, in his old beat-up car, I remember him just parking by the side of a road in the town of Acton, that's where I grew up. And there he told me, he said, son, however you turn out in life, he wasn't sure that I was going to do well in life or what I was going to do. He said, whatever you do in your life, however you turn out, please remember the door of my house will always be open to you. And that's all he said. You know, it's a strange thing as a young man, especially a, a male, you know, you, you don't really understand too much about the important things of life. But I knew it was important. The way he said that, it sort of impressed me. But when I tried to examine it with you know, my intellect, the door of his house, we never lived in the house. It was what they call a council flat, and not a very nice one, in a poor part of London. And even though it was very small and very poor, it was our home. And I've told the story to many of you before, that we would never, sometimes my father would leave the door open, not locked. And when I asked him, you know, should we not lock the door? He said, no, keep it open. 
What happens if burglars come in? Well, if a burglar comes in, I hope they may take pity on us and leave us something. You know, it's a strange thing. I never thought that my house, you know, was, had lots of poverty. It was only later on. I remember when my father died and one of my teachers came to check out that I was okay. And I said, no, we're okay. He said, why did you come anyway? He said, because you're poor. It was a teacher which I respected. And for the first time, it's like, you know, you realize that you were materially doing it quite tough. But nevertheless, I've told you all the great advantages which I saw of that. When my parents could not really worry too much about money to try and feed us and to educate us. Those are the sorts of things which we manage by ourselves. I even remember, you know, you may feel this is a bit weird, but I remember my poor mother was just so busy just having a job as a typist and a secretary to do too much feeding for us. And I kept on asking her, I said, Mummy, when are we going to have another like apple pie? I used to love my apple pies. She said, I can't do it, I'm too busy. So I said, okay, you teach me how to do it. So I made the apple pies. I was a male, a boy. I became quite a good cook of the food stuff I liked. <laughs> but it's not just that, because when I did that for my mum, it was like helping her and giving her something nice from about 14 or 15 year old kid. And that was my gift to my mum. But not only that, just, you know, when my father said that, the door of my house is always open to you, it meant something so powerful I did have to take it deeper and find out what he really meant. And that's one of the lovely things about being like a monastic or like you going on retreats if you ever have that opportunity. Because you have time. You have time to remember the important things which have happened to you in your life and to understand them. You know, sometimes we go so fast one day to the next no one job to another job, one weekend to the next weekend. Sometimes life travels so fast we don't have time to really figure out what's going on and why it goes on and how best to understand this thing which we call life. But once you, for example, the privilege of becoming a monk or a nun or being on retreat, you have all this time, plenty of time to be able to understand things. And that was one of the things which I really needed to contemplate and to understand. It was an important thing which my father said. He died a couple of years later. But why? Why did he say that to me? What did it mean? And then, of course, you all know the story, that eventually I understood what he meant. It was not the door of his little flat. I had a key anyway was important was the, uh, the door of his heart. And when you understood that, this was like a father, an important person in your life. And he was saying, the door of my heart will always, that was an important word, always be open to you. And then the unconditional part of that, no matter what you ever do in your life. It was that unconditionality of that openness. And when I figured that out as a monk, oh my goodness, that was the best gifts my father had ever given me, ever. And of course, that's how I uh, taught unconditional loving kindness to each one of you. But I'm going to add here that one day, each one of you will have to say that to yourself. Because that's one of the lovely things I learned from Buddhism. You don't just give loving kindness to others. You give it to yourself as well. You treat other people no more, no less than the way you treat yourself. Loving kindness goes to all beings. 
you included. And don't ever think that is small, that's huge. Remember when you're just by yourself, in a time you have some space and some time for yourself, and you say to yourself, me, you know all your faults more than anybody else in this whole world. You know your weaknesses, and the things you should have done which you didn't do, the things which you did do, <laughs> did do but you shouldn't have, all those little things, you know them better than anybody else. But then you look at yourself and say, me, this person you will never be able to escape from, the person you'll never be able to run away from, the person who was there when you were born, is there when you're going to die, you, this person who bears your name. The door of my heart is open to me. Fully, no matter what I've ever done. That sense of 100% acceptance, forgiveness and understanding. It's an important thing to do because if you haven't done that, there's always a sense somewhere inside of you, you're not good enough, that somehow or other you could be better, that something or other you are wrong. And that word even wrong sometimes, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible word. I don't know why people use it so much. So much so that you all know that whenever you are sick, how many doctors are here today, nurses? You don't have to put your hand up. But anyway, if you are a doctor or a nurse, don't you get a bit fed up when people come into your rooms and say there's something wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with being sick. That's natural. Why do you feel that you've made some mistake? You've got COVID. Bad girl. You should know better than that. You, you know where I got this from, first of all? There was a book which I read as a student. It was called Erewhon. It's like nowhere spelt backwards. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. And over a hundred years ago this was written. And this guy, it was like a sci-fi, but like a sci-fi with a very important meaning. He imagined as an explorer finding this ancient society in one of the more remote parts of New Zealand. And in that remote society, they had developed independent of so many other societies. It wasn't colonized, it, wasn't in, well, it was indigenous. But there, when anybody uh, broke the law, uh, stealing or, or hitting someone too hard and injuring them, they were sent to the doctor. The doctor was actually, I don't know if any of you have read that book. That doctor was called a straightener. They straighten you out, but as a doctor, they thought there was something wrong with you, in the sense you were ill. Why would anybody harm another human being? It looked like as being like a sickness. And anybody who was what we would call ill, that was their fault. And so they were actually punished. I remember just one of the, the passages there. This person, this person who discovered this uh, society was shown around and was shown a court of law. And that the court of law, like the courts we have here, Supreme Court, Magistrates Court, this was a poor man who had a cold and he was always wiping his nose <laughs> and sniffling and it was before the judge and the judge said this isn't the first time you've been before me last time I let you off with a light sentence and I warned you if you come in front of me again sniffling with a cold I'm gonna throw the book at you 
I told you, you must take more responsibility for your own health. And you haven't. So because of your negligence, which is a very big danger to other people in society. Once you have a cold, you will spread that to other people. That is punishable. And I'm now going to give you one year in jail because you've got a cold and it's your fault. <laughs> they punished people who were sick and they just treated people who were, we thought, these days were criminals. And that actually was powerful for me. I always remember there's one of the philosophers, authors, George Bernard Shaw. You maybe heard his name. He was a very influential man in his age. And he said that that book was one of his favorite books which taught him so much. But he was putting things in a different perspective about what is real health. And people with ill health, is that your fault? People who do things like stealing. How many of you remember that great book, Les Miserables? Why did Jean Valjean steal? Because his children were hungry. <laughs> Have you ever read that and just paused? Are you a parent and your kids are starving? It's not as if you're stealing because you, know, you want to become rich. These people you love and care for, you know, have got no food in their bellies. And what would you do? And so it changed my whole idea of like crime and punishment, sickness and health. You don't take either option there, but you do change. You much feel that surely there should be much more compassion in all the forms of judgment we so rashly and uh, quickly give to other people, including yourself. All the things which have happened to you. I, I do a lot of teaching at the Solaris Center, for, Solaris Center for Cancer Care. Where there's lots of people you know, who have cancers, tumors, and goodness knows what else. How many of you feel that it's your fault if you have a cancer? You're too much out in the sun. You didn't relax enough, you didn't rest enough. You should take more, greater care of your health. Is it your fault? I say that because you meet too many people who haven't opened the door of their heart to themselves unconditionally, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And in other cases, you know in those old days they used to go to prisons to teach. And you see young men there, or middle-aged men, when they were young they did some terrible crimes. Why? Sometimes you feel, was it really their fault? They had choices, but their choices were so limited. So what I'm saying, it's so hard to judge other people. And sometimes it's so hard even to judge yourself. Sometimes I see people getting angry at each other. I say, why are you getting angry? Look at the way he talks to me, look at the way he acts, look at the way... You don't know why he's doing that what the mitigating circumstances are, the why. And so because of that, you know, honestly it's too hard to get angry and critical of another human being. I don't know what they've gone through, where they've gone, how, why they do those things. And certainly, when you can't judge them, there's only one other possibility, which is kind of forgiveness. Have you ever known that or seen that when you get angry at someone? When you get angry at someone, I notice this myself. Why, you know, when I was a young monk or young person, why did I get angry? And I found that somebody said something or did something. And I can't just get angry without justifying it. 
And by justifying it, what I did was I did a little mini trial inside of myself. I said, that was a wrong thing to do. That was really hurtful. That wasn't right. And I noticed I was being the prosecutor in a trial. Now, in a fair trial, you won't just have a prosecutor, you will have somebody speaking for the defense as well. So whoever you got angry at, before you make a judgment, please have a defense attorney. Mitigating circumstances. Perhaps I misunderstood them. Perhaps they pushed me because they pushed me out of the way of a, a speeding car. Maybe they were saying these things to remind me of something, out of kindness and compassion. Maybe I try all the mitigating circumstances, which, which is what a defense lawyer is supposed to do. And every time which I did that, when somebody really hurt me, or said something terrible about me, then I thought, you can't get angry anymore. If you give the person you hate, or you're angry with, a fair trial, you can't come to any conclusion except an undecided. But sometimes I found that I, wasn't, I had no defense attorney when I was getting angry at somebody, thinking about them. And number two, no defense attorney, and I was a judge as well. I was the prosecutor and the judge. And as soon as I banged that hammer down, guilty, then I felt good about saying something nasty to them or punishing them. And I thought that was unfair. There's something about that, because I could see people doing that to me, and that was, that was wrong. So imagine instead you open the door of your heart to other people who have hurt you no matter what they've done. Could you do that? If you could, maybe you can take it to the next level and do that to yourself. Me. Have you always acted perfectly? Of course not. I've never, I haven't always acted perfectly. I always do stupid things coming late or whatever. I'm just, I do so many stupid things, I can't remember just one right now which I did, which I shouldn't have done. Nicholas, do you remember something stupid which I did recently? Because you look after me a lot. Now come on. What did I do which was stupid the other day? Oh yeah, that's a good one, yes. Thank you, yes. You see, we usually have a sitting cloth under here, you know, which we, between the cushion and my robe. I forgot my sitting cloth today, and you were out there looking for it. So you're to blame as well. No, it was my responsibility. I'm going to give you a fair trial. But nevertheless, <laughs> guilty. <laughs> no, you don't do that. Once I see that, I found how many times I just want to blame other people, or want to blame myself. And these days you find you can't can't blame anybody. And why do some people, when they're in stressed out, oh look, one thing which I did, which comes to mind, a very dangerous thing. I remember once, you know, where before I was a monk, you know I had long hair and also a motorbike. Can you imagine me, vroom, 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 with my motorbike? <laughs> and I was going down in London, uh, Notting Hill Road between Notting Hill and Shepherd's Bush. I always tell people in Australia that I was born in the bush. <laughs> Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> but nevertheless, going down that road, just that 30 miles an hour was the speed limit, and the car in front of me broke very suddenly. What had happened is somebody had actually gone across the road, a pedestrian crossing quite legal, and just one of those things which happened. The car in front of me broke very suddenly. I was behind that car. I put on my brakes. It was wet. It's usually wet in London. 
there must have been some oil on the road because I got into a skid. I remember that was about three or four months before I went to Thailand. So you were skidding you know, into a carp which had halted in front of me, lost control. And I remember having this split second decision. I could turn the motorbike so it missed the car, but I couldn't see where it was going. Had a very good chance of hitting the pedestrian. I couldn't stop myself. So I had the choice, smash into the back of a car and be really, really badly injured, maybe not even being able to become a monk, or swerve around and put a pedestrian in danger. And of course you can see what happened. I swerved around and I just missed the pedestrian. I was very, very fortunate. But it's those sorts of decisions, you know, when it's just so fast, so quick, sometimes that lands people in jail. Sometimes that you get away with it. And it's that close. That made it so hard for me ever to criticize anybody or blame anybody. Just momentary decisions. You make it, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. But the consequences far outweigh just the, the fact that you just made a quick decision. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. So because of that, it became so hard to actually to be critical of anybody or to blame anybody. And anyhow, when terrible things happen like that, when I understand just where that comes from, people in a difficult situation, they make a choice and it's a wrong choice. Wrong choice? It's a choice, they try their very best. Because of that, I find it much easier to forgive. And you know, imagine what it's like when you have more forgiveness in your life. People have hurt you. You can say, well, I don't know why you did that. Maybe you had your reasons, or maybe you never expected to hurt me, or in a bad mood, or, or you did the wrong thing. And Imagine you can forgive others. Imagine what a beautiful world that would be. You know, right now, I don't know how many people remember this. You know, there's this terrible, terrible war going on between you know, Israel and the people in Palestine. And I remember years and years ago they had a, you know, always having wars there between Israel and the president of Egypt at that time. It was President Sadat. I think I get him right. I was really amazed when he decided he was the president of that country. He just uh, asked for one of the aircraft in Cairo to take him to, I think, Tel Aviv to meet the then president of Israel. No other people made those arrangements. He just decided to do it almost on the spur of the moment. And just to go and talk to this person. Enough wars. Let's have sort of some friendship and a treaty. I think they got Nobel Prizes for that. What really impressed me with that, he did that without any care for his own well-being and without just organizing what should we talk about, where should we talk, without all these people making the arrangements beforehand. They just went. And to me that was a great act of heroism. Apparently he was assassinated later on because of that, but he created some peace for that. And to me that's a kind of heroic thing to do. You know, sacrifice your own life for a bit of peace in that world. But anyway, when it comes to, I should get back onto the subject of your parents <laughs> and what you should do, please never criticize yourself. I know what it's like, because I became a monk when I was 23. So I, my f father already died, but my mother was very much alive. 
And I had to ask her for permission to become a monk, that's part of our rules. And she said, yes, you can become a monk, but please, can you be a monk in London somewhere? I don't mind your choice of lifestyle being a Buddhist monk, but can you do it somewhere closer? You can understand how a mother would feel. But anyway, there was no other places at that time I could be a monk in London. So I went over to Thailand and I never saw my mother for another seven years. You couldn't, it was just too far away. And the airfares were very expensive then. This was in 1974. So it was very difficult to travel. But nevertheless, personally, it was a beautiful thing to do because I was away from a family. I could let go of those concerns and those attachments as well. But even though you let go of the attachments, you still had a sense of responsibility and duty that the human being who carried you in her womb for such a long time, of the person who sacrificed so much to bring you up. And even my father, this is another personal story which I don't think I've told you, there was a time, I went to a very poor school, primary school, but through scholarships went to a much better school. And when I was in that better school, I was always doing really, really well, mostly in maths, because I loved maths. It was like a great game. It's like some people like playing soccer, some people like playing footy, some people like playing basketball. I like doing sums. Even today, I still do Sudoku puzzles and stuff. I enjoy it. But nevertheless, because I enjoyed something like maths, you started doing well at school, and that's what I got all the scholarships for. And I remember just, like even these days, uh, you always have the parents' teachers' evenings. And I remember just, my mum and dad went to the school to talk to the teacher. This was, I think, the second or third year, third year at this school. And that's when I was really starting to fly high. And you know, my teacher at that time, my maths teacher, said, your son is doing so well, I think he's probably going to go to Cambridge University. That freaked my father out. You may think, oh, he'd be so proud. My father was challenged. Because that was not in his world. His world, if he said he'd get a nice job, as a sort of a bartender, or a nice job working in a garage, or a nice uh, job uh, driving trucks. He'd be very happy with that because that was a world he was used to. But the idea of an academic in a posh, toffee-nosed university like Cambridge, that was a bit too much for him. And I only found this out from my friends afterwards. The next day at the school, they said, hey, did you know your father almost had a fist fight with our teacher. And then my father would do that because the teacher of math, he, had, he was a tank commander in the Second World War and got blown up in Italy. And the Italian uh, soldiers, when they sort of captured him, unfortunately they took him to a hospital and they gave him as much plastic surgery as they possibly could. But even so, he looked monstrous. His, his, skull, his, uh, his face had all been twisted around. That's the only way they could uh, get him to look half human. So he was the most scary of the teachers in the whole school. And nevertheless, my father was about to have a fist fight with him. No, my son is not going to go there. And of course, I understood why. Because you know, for a father, you always want to be close to your children. Like a mother, always wants to be close, you know, to your children. These are the people you love. You don't want to be them taken away in a life which you know is beyond your comprehension. Of course, my father eventually just uh, <laughs> was talked in <laughs> to admitting, yeah, he might go there. But unfortunately that he died before I went to Cambridge. I remember his brother, my uncle, when he found out I got admitted to Cambridge, he burst out weeping. Your father would have been so proud of you.
But nevertheless, you can understand how the psychology of a parent always wanting the best, however they think that best is for their kid. And I remember that. And you always try your very best to look after your parents. So much so that when I did become a monk, I'd always write a letter to my mother every week, what it's like to be a Buddhist monk. And you know what I usually wrote to her? All the wonderful things about meditation and Four Noble Truths and dependent origination and rebirth and stuff. And then when she wrote back, it was always about the weather. <laughs> and I got the message and I asked her in one letter, how much of this Buddhism do you really understand? She said, none of it. <laughs> She's just being a mother trying her best to connect with me. And so from that time on I wrote letters about the weather too. <laughs> and some of the culture, you know, of being there at that time in that place, which was very beautiful. But what I did realize, just what my mother wanted, what my father would have wanted, is for their children to be happy, at peace, and be doing a good job in the world. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I feel kind of sad that you know, my mother and father haven't seen just you know, how much all this work as a monk has actually achieved in this, in this planet Earth. I tell all these stories, but you know, they really mean so much to me. You know, just when, I'm not going to tell the guy in Sheffield, but the time before in Paddington Station, when I was just walking through Paddington Station, this was on a previous trip to UK about a couple of years ago. And you're just walking, not sort of doing anything, you're just going to the, the connecting train. And this woman came running towards me. And I'm just, when people run that fast towards you, they're like trying to attack me, or what's happening? I didn't recognize her at all, I couldn't recognize her. She was an Afro-English person. Spoke with her in a thick English accent, not an accent, an African in her face. Said, you know what she said to me? I'll never forget this. You're the YouTube monk. <laughs> That's what we call me, YouTube monk. <laughs> well, I didn't know, there's other monks on YouTube. I said, quite like he's, and before I could really answer, yes you are, you're Ajahn Brahm, what on earth are you doing in Paddington Station? You're supposed to be in Australia. <laughs> and I really like that. Because obviously she was excited. And then she told me her story. Now just a young woman, maybe in her twenties, in a relationship which went really sour, and just, uh, her partner at that time, this boy, I didn't know who he was, but had really treated her very badly. And when you've been in a relationship like that, which has gone really sour, sometimes it's one of the hardest things you have to bear with. Other people say, it's only a relationship, we'll find another one later on. It's not quite like that. It really hurts deep inside of you. And so she said that she was suicidal for weeks. And you know, this was in UK, in London. They have great national health service, lots of stuff for free. But she said that no, nothing helped. And all these psychologists and psychiatrists, which you could go to for free, none of them basically uh, made any sense to her. So out of desperation, she decided to go on YouTube. <laughs> that she said, then I came across your talk. That talk which she came across was one of the most famous of the YouTube talks. That was the Four Ways of Letting Go. Which is, millions of people have watched that. I forget what the latest figure is. Anyone know? Three or four million? Or something? But, I mean, around that number, I'm not exaggerating. But anyway, she saw that talk, and that hit the spot for her. Sometimes I don't know why. I just give a talk the best I possibly can, but sometimes it really hits home. And so she said she binged for the next five or six hours, however many talks from the BSWA she could download. 
and it worked for her. And so that's why she looked at me with this really beautiful smile. Ajahn Brahm, you saved my life. And she meant it. I don't know what you're doing in Paddington Station, but thank you. <laughs> and those are the sorts of things which you realize I wish my father could know. And my mother, to see what his son who went off, renounced the world and became a Buddhist monk. And what other great monks, other great nuns, what they get up to. It's a beautiful life. And that's kind of every time I get a nice compliment like that. That's like my gift. I always remember my parents. Without them, without my father saying something like the door of my heart will always be open to you no matter what you do. That was really important. And love which doesn't demand anything back in return. I love you just because you're my son. That's the only reason. I love you because you're my daughter. I love you. That's all. Imagine how freeing that is. And that's one of the reasons why if any of you have children, or thinking of having children, if you haven't said that to them yet, please say it to them. And how much that would mean to them. I know how much it meant to me. This is someone who really cares for you. He said, you're my son, my daughter. I might not always agree with what you do, but nevertheless, you know, you're close enough, you can always come in, come into my heart. We share the same blood. We share so many experiences together. Please. And of course, imagine once again what would happen if you do that to yourself. Sometimes I say that to myself. Keep on saying it to myself. Look in the mirror. You know, I often, I told this to somebody, I don't know if they're still here, but told them, you know, when you get up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? You, you, and when I was asked that question, the first thing I do, I go to the toilet. And then this teacher said, when you go to the toilet, find a mirror. There's always a mirror in the toilet somewhere. When you see that mirror, look at yourself in that mirror. Put your two fingers on the side of your mouth and push up. That was the most effective psychological trick I've ever done and taught. Simple, incredibly effective. Because every time I did that, you know what I said, look, I said, I'm a young man. In those days, sometimes I'd go to bed drunk. I was a young student, and sometimes I wouldn't sleep enough. I said, I, I wouldn't dare to look at myself in the mirror that time in the morning. Yeah, you brush your teeth, had a cup of tea or coffee or something, I can look at myself, but not straight away. He said, no, do that. So every morning, imagine that. For two years, I never missed a day. Every morning, I smiled at myself in the mirror. And every morning, I saw this stupid young man <laughs> making funny faces <laughs> in the mirror. And I just laughed at myself. What a beautiful way to start the day with a big laugh at yourself. And any criticism I had of myself, how I behaved the night before, what I'd done, what I hadn't done, all that sort of stuff totally vanished. The smile just melted it all away. And that was something very simple. How to open the door of your heart to yourself, smile at yourself, and give yourself this beautiful sense of, I'm at peace with myself. This stupid guy I know so well, making faces at himself and laughing. I don't know what anybody else thought if they went in the toilet at the same time or the washroom. They probably thought I was still on drugs or something. I don't care what they thought. I wasn't on drugs. I was just learning how to be at peace with myself. And that was the legacy from my father. So he had this immense gratitude for parents, immense gratitude for mothers. And to this day, 
how can you show that gratitude to your mother? I shouldn't, no, I'm going to say it, I don't care. But every time that somebody, please don't do this, okay, tomorrow or the next day when you bring food to the monks, but every day that somebody serves me my mother's favorite dish. I'm going <laughs> to say it. Bangers and mash. With sausages with mashed potato and gravy. <laughs> I don't know if that's very healthy or not, but every time they offer that, I will always accept it and think, I'm going to eat this for my mum. It reminds me of her. And that's you know, a kind of way of respecting you know, your mother by eating what she would like to eat. So that's a sometimes, but of course my parents, when they did try to hold me back at first, but then they were very happy that you, know, you went off into the world, went off over to Thailand, became a monk. They weren't Buddhist at all. They, had, they couldn't even spell the word Buddhism. <laughs> There's no one in the family who was a Buddhist. They were all atheists mostly, but nevertheless, they're such beautiful, kind people, and I'd always remember that. And that's how I always think of my parents, with respect and kindness. Remember the beautiful things they did for me in my, their life. The silly things they did for me, like fighting my teacher to try and stop me going to Cambridge. So I can understand that. The fact that they would love you to be back and so you could see them. These days it's much easier. You've got things like Zooms, Skype, I don't know, all these other things. You can just connect with them online immediately and say, look, you know, I'm in Perth. I'm doing a very, very good job. I'm working hard. I will always remember you. I'll go to the temple for you. If something you really need, let me know. But I can't just get on an aircraft and come and see you. I never, ever would feel that I've let my parents down. Even though when my mother died, the first thing I wanted to do was just get on the next plane. But I called my brother and said, look, things work differently in London. There's such a backlog of people waiting to be cremated. They can't do the cremation for another couple of months. So just take your time, relax, and get a cheaper flight back to London. <laughs> But I always remember this, as even as a monk, you're always concerned about your parents. You always love them. Even if they've done difficult things, they haven't served you as much as they could, don't be critical of them. Because sometimes they did the best they possibly could. They thought they were looking after you and loving you, but they hadn't learned yet what that real love truly is. So anyway, that's a little thing about in Chinese New Year or any day of the year, how to look after your parents. That's what I think is filial piety. It's not just doing what your parents tell you to do. And if you say, why not? Did Siddhartha Gautama do what his parents asked him to do? He left home. His father was really upset that he left, but nevertheless that's what he did and afterwards his father was very proud of him. A beautiful person. So always remember that. Do what will please your father and your mother in the long term. Not just going back and just uh, visiting when it costs too much money. Do something much more powerful than that. Okay, I've just gone over time again. Please excuse me. So anyone got any questions or comments or complaints about the talk this evening? Complaints are okay, you know. Just I don't take them seriously. <laughs> <laughs> anyone from the floor? From the chair? From the cushion, from the armchair? <laughs> you know how you can get to sit in the armchair? The most comfortable seat in the house. Drew used to be the president 
of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. So if you join our committee and then stay for a while, then you probably get elected as president. When you get elected as president, you can get the most comfortable chair in the house. We are going to have, uh, when is we having our AGM soon? End of April. So there's still time to put in your nominations. And who knows? You can be, uh, you start off as being the president, then you get elected to be the chairman. Okay, nah. Anyway, you know, questions? Goodness, that poor internet. I've stunned the internet crowd. They are speechless. They just don't know what to say. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Here we go. So we do have some questions. Here we go. Oh my goodness. Okay. There's only, only one question tonight. Wow. Dear Ajahn Brahm, when meditating, my muscles start twitching involuntarily, especially my jaw. It always closes and opens, all on its own, making my teeth click. <laughs> any, any, no, I shouldn't sort of make fun. Actually, sometimes you do make fun. The reason why you make fun is because if I don't take it too seriously, then maybe the person who asked that question doesn't take it too seriously. They relax. They don't think it's a big problem, which it is not a big problem at all. It's not a problem at all. Start twitching. It's just, first of all, there may be some reason for that. The body needs to do that to release some tension. But it doesn't matter. After that happens, when the tension is released, sometimes it becomes almost like a habit, like you expect that to happen. And I'm not talking about sort of consciously, but subconsciously. This is what happens when you start meditating. <laughs> but the way to do that is just open the door of your heart to that. Accept it, unconditional acceptance. And don't think of it as a big thing. You know, every time that I start breathing, my tummy goes up and down, up and down, up and down. I don't look upon that as a, as a problem at all. I just look upon that's just what the body needs to do, to breathe. So if it's twitching, just allow it to twitch. And maybe I should say, that's a sign of very deep meditation. If I say that, then half of you will be twitching next week. <laughs> so in other words, just be kind to your body. If that's what it wants to do, let it do it. Sometimes people move backwards and forwards when they're meditating. Uh-oh. A question around the back there somewhere. Here we go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, Ajahn, it's not a question. Your four ways of letting go is now over 2.5 million views. 2.5 million. Thank you for your gift to the world, Ajahn. Excellent. <laughs> for your service. Okay. That's not bad. You know how much money I get out of that? <laughs> Zilch. <laughs> That's one of the lovely things about giving and it's things which people like. You never think of the money side of things. You just give for the <laughs> sake of the joy of giving. My payment in return is to you know, hear somebody say that was a, a good talk and thank you for giving it, it saved my life. That's the sort of thing which is called a job satisfaction. Okay. Did you have a question? No. Okay. Oh, you got a question? No. 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 Come on. Leave Eddie alone. <laughs> Poor old Eddie. He always has to ask questions. So take the pressure on him. Off him. Okay. Let's finish off now. If you want to ask a question, you can come up afterwards to us. You have one. Okay. Oh, the carrot. Oh, okay. yeah, that's a <laughs> Here comes the carrot story. That's all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs>
<laughs> Those have heard it before. <laughs> you can leave now. <laughs> there were two carrots walking down St George's Terrace, shopping. And there was somebody in a car, they'd been drinking, they lost control of their vehicle. And they veered onto the pavement, the sidewalk, and they hit one of the carrots. The carrot was really badly injured. Fortunately, the other carrot had his mobile phone, rang zero, 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 and an ambulance came within a couple of minutes. Very lucky. And when the medics came out of the ambulance and checked the injured carrot, it was so serious, they put him straight in the back of the ambulance and they rushed to uh, Royal Perth Hospital with the other carrot, the uninjured carrot, in the back. And he was really fretting, very worried. His friend, the other carrot, looked really, really sick. And when they got to Royal Perth, the triage nurses took one look at the injured carrot and arranged for immediate surgery. It was a life and death situation. And so the other injured uninjured carrot was in the waiting room. If you've ever been in the waiting rooms of those hospitals when people are in surgery, it's so incredibly tense. It is life and death. You don't know whether you'll see your friend anymore. But anyway, after a couple of hours, the surgeon came into the waiting room and he recognized, oh, you must be the friend of the carrot we've just done the operation on. And I said, I've got some good news and bad news for you. So the good news is because we got to the injured carrot very quickly and we had the best surgeons on the operation, he's going to survive. He's going to make it. He's going to live. Oh, thank goodness for that, said the friend, the other carrot. What's the bad news? And the bad news, said the surgeon, because of his injuries, he's going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but laughing at my own stupid jokes. He's going to be a vegetable for last I've got another question, oh my goodness. That must be big. the Carrot Society. G'day, Arjun. Um, some questions wouldn't actually make it through to the iPad, so you've got three up here on the screen. Do you want me to read them to you? Okay, quickly, yeah. Okay, so the first one is, does deja vu have anything to do with Buddhism? Not really. <laughs> Great. Uh, I know it's always better to be kind than not kind enough, but how can we ensure that our kindness isn't perceived as weakness, leading others to take advantage of or harm us? It's you have the kindness to others and to yourself. It's not just to others. It's kindness to us. And it's kind to yourself to make sure you're not Excess, excessively taken advantage of. Although sometimes I've told you this and it's true, that's my job, to be taken advantage of. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You know that. <laughs> so please, take advantage of me. What's the third question? So the last one is, uh, how do I deal with intense fear and fearful visions when meditating, especially on retreat? If you have intense fear, I guarantee that that intense fear will never harm you. Just stand your, or no, you can't say stand your ground, sit your ground. I've been teaching meditation for years. I even taught meditation when I was a school teacher. That was in 1973, 73, 70, yeah, 73. I taught 650 school kids every morning breath meditation. I've been teaching meditation for how many years is that? 50 years? 55 or something? But anyway, never once, not once, has anybody died while I've been teaching a meditation retreat. Never once have they gone crazy. Never once has there been any harm. The only thing which has happened to quite a few people on my meditation retreats is that they have lost all their hair. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's 
one of the occupational hazards for a meditator. <laughs> In other words, there's no risk, there's no dangers there at all. And I stand by all that meditation I've taught for so many years. Check it out. No one has ever um, gone crazy or um, uh, died on any of this retreat. So if you get some fear up, be more gentle. Give it lovely loving kindness. The door of my heart is open to you, fear. Then nothing can harm you. No. Okay, I've already started thinking about it, so I'm going to say it. You know, recently, I'm not quite sure why, the first time over in the Hermit's Hill property next to Jarno Grove, people have now started to see some wild pigs up there. When I first was told about wild pigs here in Australia, oh, they're very, very dangerous. But the monks who have seen them, they're little baby pigs as well. And they said they're so cute, especially the little ones with little legs going boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and as a Buddhist, as a senior monk, I know that as long as you're kind to the animals, in the forest, the animals will never harm you. They'll get used to you. You leave them alone and give them some kindness, and they'll always give kindness back to you. So that's the same that no one ever gets harmed when you give like kindness. How many of you uh, saw that dugite, the big snake at Jarna Grove? Did you see that one, Prem? Yeah, it's a beautiful snake. Two guides. Oh, one bite of them and you're in big trouble. But that two guide, when they told me it was there, I went to check it out. It just sits there soaking up the sun. It's really you know, close to the entrance, close to other places. But you just leave it alone, give it some loving kindness. It just sits there. Thank you for letting me be still. So you don't have to be worried about anything. Those animals, they just want a bit of peace and quiet. It's weird, our retreat center, how many animals come there for the sense of safety and security. We had this cat come once, arrived just, I think, one of the first days of the rains retreat. It's a beautiful cat. And it was obviously domesticated, it didn't have a collar on, but it was not afraid of human beings. And imagine, like, at that time, maybe 20 or 25 monks having a pet. So <laughs> that cat got so much milk and so much petting and patting. And it was there for, for the whole three months and then we decided to find out if we could adopt it. So we took it to the vet and we found out it did have an owner. It had a little chip inside of it. And its owner came from South Perth. And then, so we said, your cat's over here. It's been here for, we wondered where it was. It gone missing for three months. His name was George. So can we have George back? He said, why did it go to Buddhist monastery? The owners weren't Buddhist, but to me it was obvious. He wanted to do a range retreat <laughs> with the monks, and he did that for a whole three months. <laughs> it's very hard to get on the range retreat. <laughs> and the cat just came out, had a wonderful time. We have another little cat who's been here on the evenings. And that little cat, do we know its name? But anyway, you know, you've seen the cat, sometimes it goes on the shrine. It shows it's a Buddhist. <laughs> and so sometimes that when you're not afraid of animals, animals are not afraid of you. And we can live together in peace and harmony. So no need to feel afraid. Okay. Well, that's all you're getting for tonight. Already done over time. So thank you, Bill. Thank you, Internet. So now we can actually pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and afterwards, if you want to stay for a little while longer, you're most welcome. Otherwise, uh, we can have a nice, quiet evening.
bhagavantang avivadevi suvakato bhagavata dhammo dhammang namasami supatipano bhagavato sawaka sango sangang namami <laughs> <laughs>